Welcome to Torah Studies, our weekly look at the Torah portion. This week we have a double header, and to answer the age-old question of when do we synchronize the diaspora with Israel, the answer is this Shabbat. Finally, since Passover, we've been a week off or a parsha off. Finally, by the end of Shabbat, we will be reconciled and all will be right in the universe. Um, Torah portion again is Matot Mase, the final two portions of the book of Numbers. We're going to focus, like we do many weeks, we're going to focus on one specific area or one specific idea from the Torah portion and kind of build off of that and hopefully develop something that has a very relevant takeaway. So let's pass these around. There we go. My pleasure. Okay, so the topic this week is chosen. Chosen. I remember speaking with a man, a rabbi named Yisrael Haber. Yisrael Haber was a rabbi for the Air Force. I believe he was uh, a military Air Force rabbi who was stationed for a while in Anchorage or in Alaska. And he said that when he went to Alaska, he wasn't sure if there were any Jews there, but apparently there are Jews in Alaska, and they call themselves the Frozen Chosen. They call themselves the Frozen Chosen. Legit. I actually, yeah, Chabad, yeah. Chabad, I actually worked with him on his book. Um, his book was called A Rabbi's Northern Adventure, about his time in Alaska. I don't remember the details of the stories, I just remember that line, the frozen chosen, but that gets me to today's topic, which is all about the chosen nation or the chosen people, and the question that we will deal with throughout today's class, one central question. How do we feel about the notion of the Jewish people being chosen? How does that, how does that feel? Are we proud of that? Do we say, yes, we are the chosen people? Do we say, oh, we're the chosen? Oh, wait, hold on. David is writing something. Hold on. I saw something about a Chinese restaurant. I'm all in on this. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Um, chosen is a kosher Chinese restaurant in the five towns. That's epic. Cho chosen. Chosen. Hey, Ed. Good to see you. That's a great book and movie. What is? Oh, cho oh the chosen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So how do we feel about the notion of the chosen people? And, you know, if we had, I don't know, maybe a bit of a different format, we would just go around and schmooze about our experiences with this idea of chosen people, chosen nation. Do we wear it as a badge of pride? Do we, do we try to, you know, shun it as a badge of, uh, of um, discomfort? It's like, oh, you Jews are chosen, right? Like, oh, I didn't say that. That wasn't me. I didn't write the Bible. Like, what are you looking at me? Or is it like, no. Chosen. Absolutely. And what does that mean? What is, uh, Dina Malka, yeah, jump in. Yes. You know, um, you're talking about Jews in Alaska, and you may not be able to see this. Can you oh. see this window? Yes. With the Jewish star in the middle? Uh, yes, I see it now, yeah. Well, it's in a church in Alaska. They ordered a window, and it came with a Jewish star, so they just whatever, they put it up on the church. Wow. Look at that. Little did they know that that has this, the, the equipment that goes up to the satellites. That was a joke. That was a joke. Oh, okay. Yeah. It mean, it's Saint... Uh, you don't remember that? Yeah. Church, right. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> All right. Good. So here's the deal. How do we feel about the idea of chosen? 
Does it make us uncomfortable? Does it make others uncomfortable? Are we more uncomfortable than others? You with me on that? Mm -hmm. Right? Are we more uncomfortable than others? These are the questions we're going to deal with today. So the first thing we're going to do... Yeah, it's Fred, an offer and acceptance. It's an offer and acceptance, you're saying, of the Torah. God yeah. said, you want the Torah, and we accepted it. Right. Okay? Right. Good, good. All right, we're going to get into that tonight, so hold, hold that thought. An offer we couldn't refuse. You know, Jews, God said, you want, uh, you want the tablets. We're like, how much do they cost? God said, free, so we'll take two. That was, oh, yeah, terrible. All right, back to our story. So let's jump in to um, text number one. Let's jump right into text number one. We have it here in the booklets. I have it here on, or in PDF form. Let me blow this up a little bit. Nice and big. I'm going to share my screen. And hold on. Share my screen. And add, jump in, text number one. Oh, this comes from the morning liturgy. We say this every single day um, in the Shachrit, in the morning prayers, before we recite the Shema. All right, add, jump in. You have chosen us from all other nations and tongues. You, our king, have brought us close to your great name with love. Well, there you go. You've chosen us from all other nations and tongues, brought us close to your great name with love. All right. I mean, elitist? Maybe? Sort of? You know? Yes? A little bit? Yeah. Racist? No, it's not racist. Not racist. No. Okay. All right. I'm, just, I'm, asking, I'm asking the question. Should we cancel the Siddur? No, I'm kidding. God forbid. No, but maybe. It's like, hold on. One second. What are we saying? Um, you've chosen us. You've you brought us close. You're in with love. I, I don't know. I mean, elitist, maybe racist. Just chosen nation racist. No. No. Could it be construed as such? People could. Because you're saying because people do anything. Okay. I I feel like at least asking the questions. All right. Now, let's see where this comes from. Where does the notion of a chosen nation? We say it every day in, in davening the prayers. But where where is the scriptural? Where is the biblical source of being cho- of the Jewish people being chosen? Let's take a look at text 2A. Um, Charna, please read this one. Uh, this is from Exodus. Let me put it up. This is from Exodus chapter 19. Uh, the, uh, these are passages that immediately precede the narrative, the story of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Take it away, please. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to me. And now, if you obey me and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a treasure out of all peoples, for mine is the entire earth. And you shall be to me a kingdom of princes and a holy nation. All right, so here's, here's some language. Here we have some language. And I, I want to just focus on some of these verses. So we talk about God's, God talks about his acts of love for the Jewish people. You know what I did to the Egyptians for you? You know how I carried you like on eagle's wings, brought you to me, okay? Then he talks about, then God says, um, I want you to be a, you will be, if you keep, if you obey me, keep my covenant, then you'll be a treasure out of all peoples. You shall be be to me a kingdom of princes and a holy nation. Again, the idea of like chosen and special and treasured and princes and holy and all that stuff. So, Again, one could ask the question, hold on, are we, are we kind of flirting with an elitist, if, even if not racist, but maybe an elitist worldview? 
we're better than everyone else, we're closer to God, etc. And I say, we, the Jewish people, are closer to God, better. Is that, is that kind of what we're flirting with? So it's, it's important to understand the context. And, and you'll see what I mean soon about context. Um, text 2b, we have the commentary of Rabbi Ovadia Soferno, and he gives a very important qualification, not really qualification, can, he contextualizes these verses. And, and before we jump into text 2b, I want to just take a look at one nuance, because this is the key to this commentary. The key to text 2b is what it says in 2a, the following. So take a look at verse number 5, again, I know Charna just read it, but look what, look what God says, you shall be to me a treasure out of all peoples. You shall be to me a treasure out of all peoples. Why does God say you shall be to me a treasure out of all peoples? Why does he just say you shall be to me a treasure? Why does he add out of all peoples? Now the simple explanation is, well, that's really like thumbing the nose in everyone else's face. It's like, you're better than all you guys. Okay, fine, maybe, but maybe not. Because as we'll see soon, as we will see very soon, the Sfarno gives a completely different angle on this, which is really powerful. Uh, Charna, if you're up to reading that as well. You shall be to me a treasure out of all peoples. The entire human race is more precious to me than all lower creatures because the purpose of creation is fulfilled through them. Indeed, our state, sages of blessed memory taught, beloved are human beings, for they were created in the image of God. Nevertheless, from among all, you shall be my treasure. So take a look. There's it, it, a lot of nuance here. I mean, really, not. I don't know, a lot. But there's, there's a nuanced idea here that I really want to make sure comes across. The Sfarno understands that when the Torah said, when God says in the Torah, you shall be to me a treasure out of all peoples, right? That little out of all peoples is telling us something powerful. It's telling us that all people are precious, but amongst all precious people, human beings, you are treasured. In other words, not that you, the Jewish people, are important and everyone else is garnished, is nothing, is a shmata, right? It's like, like, yeah, no, 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 God forbid. In other, look, again, look, look what he says. The entire human race is more precious to me than all lower creatures. In other words, God says every human being is precious for two reasons. For two reasons. Number one, what what are the two reasons that he says? Number one, because the purpose of creation is fulfilled through them. In other words, every human being contributes to making the world a better place. Not just Jews. Every human being contributes to making the world a better place, number one. And number two, human beings are created in the image of God, which really the two really work together. Why is it that we can make the world a better place and, 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 and bring heaven down to earth? It's because we're created in the image of God, so therefore we have that superpower. But that's true to every human being. Human beings, every human being is created in the image of God. This is not just a Jewish thing, it's a human thing. And nevertheless, and look at the last line of this photo, nevertheless God is saying of all peoples who are, who are precious, who are holy, who are special, who are integral, uh, integral um, to, the, to the purpose of creation, you are still, you, you, uh, from among all, you shall be my treasure. In other words, there's still something unique about the Jewish people, but it's not, God forbid, denigrating in any way and putting down anyone else. Hey, Marnie, good to see you. Does that make sense? In other words, let's talk about racism or prejudice or bias. Typically, the way this works is like this. Somebody says, oh, these people, usually their own people, right? Our people, we are good. We are, I don't know, what, what would somebody say? We are, not holy, but we are um, superior. superior. 
uh, we're, we're special. We're special, right? We're special, we're superior. And everyone else, they won't say everyone else is fine. They'll say, and, every, and if you're not like us, ooh, you're bad. But that's typically the way, are you with me on this, right? I mean, we, we have to go to Nazi Germany to understand an example of this, the hor- horrific examples, or, or straight up racism in our own country and other countries. Right? We know how this works. The way this works is not just we have a unique, we have an interesting quality. No, it's that we have a quality and, and not equality, a quality. And if you don't have this quality, if you don't have this feature, then you are bad. You're nothing. You're horrible. You're wrong. You're, you're, you're less than. That's typically the way this works. That's typically the way this works. Judaism never says that. Torah never says that. As the Sforno clarifies, what's going on here? What's going on is that God is saying every human being is precious. Every human being is important. Every human being contributes to the purpose of, of creation. Every human being is created in the image of God. Amongst all precious, beautiful human beings, the Jewish people are a treasure. They have something unique, but not knocking everyone else. It's actually elevating everyone else at the same time, it is also talking about the uniqueness of the Jewish people. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes? Yeah. Does that help, Charna? I just remember something Deborah Lipstadt said that <clears throat> um, Judy anti-Semitism is kind of an inverse racism. Like, not that, oh no, there goes the neighborhood. It's like um, racism because we're better. So Deborah Lipset says that, that anti-Semitism is predicated on a jealousy of the Jewish people and the chosenness and whatever. Okay. So the question is, does this address that or we're still saying the same thing? We're saying that everyone's precious, but of all the precious people, we happen to be the treasured amongst the precious. So is that still kind of, that still sounds, it still sounds a little elitist. Okay. But, but at least, hopefully, and, and I know you were um, vehemently opposed to the, to, the, to, the, to the label of racism. And I think that's accurate given this, this context, right? The context here is not that the only, the only um, viable, the only, you know, um, uh, reasonable people are the Jewish people. Everyone else is just, you know, off, you know, off the pale. No, it's not. That's not at all what the Torah says. It's not at all what what Judaism believes. It's that's not at all part of the part of the uh, of the of the equation. Every human being is created in the image of God. Every human being contributes to the purpose of creation. Amongst that, amongst human beings, the Jewish people have something unique. Now, we haven't explained what is it that is unique and why isn't that unique quality a measure of elitism. We haven't explained that. But just again, we're just trying to, to, to explain where the, where, the, where the contrast is. It's not like Jews are treasured and Judaism believes that Jews are treasured. Everyone else, ah, no good. By the way, many religions have this belief, right? Let's just be very frank here. Um, let's be very frank. And that is that many religions have this belief that if you're not like us, if you don't believe like us, then not only are you, okay, you have your own beliefs. No, if you don't believe like us, you're going to hell, right? That's what, please don't isolate that clip. That's not, that's not me. I'm saying that's what, not that anyone is, who's isolating my clip? Seriously, what is this? <laughs> As if there's like a website, you know. All right, anyway, the point is that Judaism doesn't say this. Other religions say this. If you don't, I mean, seriously, we know this, right? Other religions say if you're not like us, if you don't believe the way we believe, if you don't worship the way we worship, then eternal damnation. Wow. Okay, so there's no, like, other option? It's just your way or the highway? That's it? Judaism doesn't, doesn't say that. Judaism says, be you, worship as you worship. It's great. 
We have a unique way of worship, and there's something special about it. Fine, but that doesn't mean that if you're not doing this, then you're not good. You're great, you're precious. And the baseline is precious. Above that is treasured. Again, what is tre- precious means, okay, precious. But what's treasured? That, that we're gonna explore today. All right, so- maybe, to- maybe, maybe you could just give an example like this. Everybody is various, various jewels, but the Jews are the the diamonds or whatever emeralds or it's just an example. Right, and so so we're left with this question. The question is: so what is the nature of the treasure? What's the nature of the treasure? What what differentiates a precious humanity from a treasure Jewish people? What what is that distinction in in real time in real you know in real terms? And the second question is, how is that not, at the end of the day, elitist? To even use the example of, of, of gems and to say, well, yeah, everyone else is sapphire, Jews are diamonds. Okay, well, that still sounds elitist. At the end of the day, that still sounds elitist. So how do we, so how do we understand, so number one, what constitutes that differentiation? And how is that differentiation not still a little bit elitist? But hopefully we've now, we've, we've, got, we've gotten rid of this notion that talk of the Jews being the chosen people means that everyone else is, is, uh, is, is garnished. That's not at all what we're saying. That's not all what anyone says. Okay, fine. So let's, to understand this, let's, cre- let's draw a parallel between the people, the Jewish people, and the Jewish land, the land of Israel. The reason why we're drawing this parallel is because as we explore the contours and the nature of the special, special, specialness and the uniqueness of the land of Israel, it will help us understand a little bit about the uniqueness of the Jewish people. So, and, and in general, the, the two destinies are intertwined, like the Jewish people and the land of Israel are always intertwined. From the first time that God promises Abraham you know, blessings, the blessings are, are run along two parallel lines. It's a blessing of a people, God says, I will give you children and I will build you into a great nation. So it's about a people, descendants of his that will become a people, a nation. And, and I will give you, and God says, and I will give you a land. So there's always these parallel, these parallel blessings of a people and a land. So if you want to understand something about the nature of the Jewish people, it might be helpful to look at the twin, the twin, which is the nature of the Jewish land. And wouldn't you know it, in this week's Torah portion, we have some verses that talk about the preciousness and the beauty of the land of Israel, and it also talks about the uh, the mitzvah to settle the land of Israel and to settle in the land of Israel. So let's take a look. Let's jump back in. Sindreen, please read text number three. This is from this week's Torah portion, the second of the two, which is Masay, Numbers 33. Take it away. You should clear up the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to occupy it. So here we have, thank you, here we have God's command to clear out the land. That means clear it out from those that are currently living there which is not t- tonight's topic. The idea of <laughs> biblical ethnic cleansing, that is not the topic. Oh, look at that. I guess I said that. Right, that's not the topic of tonight's, uh, tonight's class. But that was the, the commandment, essentially, was to clear out the land and settle in it. I've given you the land to occupy it, God says. I've given it to you, and you shall occupy it. Jews are accused of occupying the land. It's kind of in the Bible. It's kind of, sort of, actually in the Bible. But, okay, now let's take a look. So, so the land of Israel, of course, we know is the Holy Land, the Promised Land, the Chosen Land, all that stuff. 
And we're going to have a few texts now that speak about the beauty and the, and the special quality of the land of Israel. First, the Sifri, one of the Midrashic texts, text number four. And Elio, please read this one. Here's a story from the Midrash. The following story is told by Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra, Rabbi Masaiah ben Karash, Rabbi Hananiah ben Achi, Rabbi Yeshua, and Rabbi Nathan. They were walking in the diaspora, and when they reached Flatham, they remembered Israel, and they cried bitter tears and tore the clothing in the morning. And they cried the words of the verse, You shall clear out the land and settle in it. They said, living in Israel is equal to all other mitzvot in the Torah. Thank you. So here we have these, these five great sages, Rabbi Huda, Rabbi Masir, Rabbi Hananiah, Rabbi Shur, Rabbi Natan, and they're walking in Chutzlar, so they're walking outside, they're walking in, a, in an area. I don't, I, you know, I try to look up where that place is. Flatom, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea where that is. Anyway, it was somewhere that was not Israel. And they, for some reason, it triggered a memory of Israel. And they cry bitter tears. And they tore their clothing. You know, like one, God forbid, if one is, loses a loved one, uh, the, there's a mitzvah to tear one's clothing. Uh, it's called uh, Kriya, actually, tearing one's clothing in mourning. And they did that. And they said, they cried the words of the verse that we just read from our Torah portion. You shall clear out the land and settle in it. There's a biblical mitzvah to settle the land of Israel. And there they were lamenting at that point, at that moment in time, they were lamenting the temple that was destroyed recently, and the fact that Jews, as Jews, they were not able, no longer able to live and to settle in the land of Israel. And they were lamenting the fact that they were unable at that point to, to fulfill the words of that verse. And then they said they culminated their lament with living in Israel is equal to all other mitzvot in the Torah. Now, what does that mean? Let's just, for just a quick moment, understand what that means. Um, how is living in Israel equal to all the other mitzvot in the Torah? So on a simple level, there are many mitzvot that can't be done outside of Israel or outside of Israel when there's no temple, right? So, so um, a lot of mitzvot are tied into, I think somewhat 80, 90 mitzvot are tied into Israel, you know, Israel living. Hashtag Israel life. So, so the point is that, you know, that, that living in Israel is a, is a pretty big deal, equal to all other mitzvot. I mean, yeah, on some level, there's a lot of mitzvot that can't be done outside of Israel. So that, that speaks again to the, to, the, to the preciousness of Israel. Now let's take a look at one other text, text number five. This text is coming from another Midrashic source, Tanat Elio, Rabbah. And um, the, what, the, what the Midrashic text is, is going to explore is, uh, is a question, why is it that the King Omri, there was a king whose name was Omri, that he had a merit that, he, that, that his children um, and even his grandchildren reigned. They were kings after him. What was, what was about, you know, he was a, on some level there was a lot of corruption then with the king. So what, what was it about him? What was his merit that, uh, that, that had him see so many descendants of his being kings as well? So let's take a look at that inside. Marnin, if you're up to it, please read text number five. Page uh, 22. Uh, I was once sitting in the great study hall of Jerusalem for 40 studies, and I asked him, why did he, why did he only merit that three generations of students were assumed from something none of his predecessors merited? They told me, we don't know. I told them, rabbis, only merited to install three generations of kings on the throne because he built a great city in Israel. 
There you go. So who's the author of this? Again, Tana Deve Elio. This is from uh, Elio, I guess. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the question is, you know, what what was King Omri's merit? Why? There were many generations of kings that were one and done, one hit wonders. It's like Asa Base and Ricky Martin, huh? Can I say it too soon? I, well, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff over there. Anyway, the point is like this: that King Om. So a lot of them were one. <laughs> Any fans of the '90s here with me? <laughs> it's a great. I saw the sign. Anyway, um, so here's here's the idea. There were many kings that were one and done. King Omri, however, and he wasn't a, he wasn't like a righteous dude necessarily. So how 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 why how how did it come to be, and why was it that he had so many descendants who were kings of his, of his that were kings? And the answer that 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 he gives is because he built a great city in Israel. Again, that's how precious and how and how important Israel is. And how, how special it is to the Jewish people. So Israel is not just a land, but it's a land that is absolutely um, intrinsically bound with the Jewish mission. Again, from the time that God spoke to Abraham, it was all part of the same parallel track. You're going to have descendants and you're going to have a land. It's almost like Jewish destiny is fulfilled specifically associated with that land, with, that land of, with the land of Israel. Um, when, when Israel is no... When, when, when the exile was... Uh, um, when we were exiled, the rabbis tore their clothing and they lamented the fact that they're no longer living in Israel. This king had many descendants who were kings because he built a great city in Israel. So, so Israel is very important. And you don't need these texts to tell you that. We know that, right? Of course, we, we all know that. But all of this leads to one question. This is all a setup for another question, a big question. In this week's Torah portion, as the mitzvah to settle the land of Israel is introduced, the land is not called the land of Israel. It is called the land of Canaan, or the land of Canaan, as pronounced in the Hebrew. And the question that we are going to ask right now is, why does the Torah not refer to it as the land of Israel? Many times it refers to it as the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan. And the simple answer obviously is, well, at that point, it, it wasn't yet the land of Israel until the Jews waltzed in. I picture a, a waltz. I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Until they waltzed in, it wasn't the land of Israel. So at that point, it was the land of Canaan because the Canaanites, the Canaanim, were living there. So of course it's called the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan. Okay, that's a technical answer. But we're going to try to go a little bit deeper. But let's first see where in our Torah portion the land is referred to as the land of Canaan. So take a look at text number 6. This is Numbers 33 again, verse 51. That's two verses before the other verse that we had, which was about settling um, and occupying the land. Here we go. This is the introduction to that mitzvah. God says to Moses, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, this is text 6, uh, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, dot, dot, dot. Why is it called the land of Canaan? Again, simple reason, because it wasn't yet Israel. It was Canaan's land, exactly. But there will be a deeper understanding. There will be a deeper understanding of this um, ultimately, uh, that will explain why the land of Canaan is not just an old name, but is rather a name that expresses something very important about the nature of the land of Israel. And I'm, very, I'm trying to be specific in my wording. The, 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 uh, the Torah's language, or God's language, calling it, that was fast, calling it the, <laughs> calling it the land of Canaan 
tells us something special about the land of Israel. Okay? So buckle up, because we're about to get, it's about to get interesting. Um, okay, so here's what I want to mention. There are two elements, there are two elements when it comes to Israel. Israel is both a holy land and also a chosen land. And these are two different adjectives. So let's, this will constitute the key of today's class. There are two different adjectives that we could use about the land of Israel. Number one, it is a holy land. The holy land. Eretz Kedosha. It's the land, it's a holy land. That's one way of understanding Israel, or one way of, of framing Israel. Another way is to call it the chosen land. It's a land that God chose. Now let's take a look at text number seven. Here we have a Midrashic teaching, and this is going to tell us um, a little bit about the, uh, the notion of God choosing the land of Israel. Not necessarily that it's holy, but that it's chosen, designated by God, for a specific purpose. Let's take a look at text number seven. You know what, let's just go back around again. Ed, if you don't mind, please read text number seven from the Midrash. Israel is cherished because God chose it. We find that when God created the world, he distributed the lands of the nations and chose the land of Israel. From where do we know this? Moses stated, when the Most High gave nations their lot and God, and God chose the Jews as his portion, as it is stated, because God's portion is his people, Jacob. God said, let the Jewish people who come into my portion go ahead and inherit the land that came into my portion. So we have, thank you. So we have again two parallel chosen entities. We have the Jewish people being chosen. We have the land of Israel being chosen. The, the Medrash begins by saying, God, sorry, Israel is cherished because God chose it. And again, that reflects one element, one thing about Israel that we could say is that God chose it. One could, one could really ask, I feel like maybe to, to really contextualize this, we have to take a step back. Why is it? Why is it that so many people are fighting over a piece of land? You ever wonder that? For so many years, fighting over a small sliver of land? So much other land. Everyone's fighting over the same piece of land? Come on, seriously. Like, what's up with that? From a Jewish perspective, the answer is historical and spiritual. It's significant. Israel is cherished because God chose it. Of all the lands, God said, this is special. I'm choosing it. Special, special land. I like this land. God chose it. It's like you go to a cookie store. You know there's a cookie store that is kosher, pasta like 100% kosher? In Dunwoody, Alley's Cookies. There's a, there's a few locations of Alley's Cookies around that may or may not be pasta but... And at, by Emory, there's one. That's not the kosher. Allie's no. cookies. You talking about Cineholic? Yes, it's Allie. Allie. Allie's cookies. Yeah. Yes. Cineholic uh, is kosher and can also be passed salt if you turn on the oven. But anyway, Allie's cookies in Dunwoody is is um, is what's it called is passed salt kosher 100. percent He even has chal v'yisrael, which is super kosher uh, level of ice cream. So you can have he can make an ice cream sandwich. This guy's named Jeff. He's a very nice guy. So, um, you know, when you, I've taken my kids a few times to that store, and you know, my kids, here's the thing, there's no, maybe you guys were here, Marnie, certainly you've seen this, where there have been kosher bakeries in Atlanta, but nowadays, 
there's not you don't really have a kosher bakery in no. Atlanta, right? All you have is you know Kroger or Publix and Toco or Sandy. You have a few places that little you know industrial like uh, supermarket bakeries, and you're at the you're at the uh, at the uh, at the mercy of whatever they're going to produce, whatever they mass produce. But Ali's Cookies, I mean, there's not a commercial custom not sponsored by Ali's Cookies, although. Sure, I'll, you know, we'll take it. But anyway, the point is that, that you, I took my kids into there for the first time, and, and they've th- there's like 20 different types of cookies. And I'm like, so which one do you want? Now their, draw, their jaw at that point was down to the floor. Like what, all these, you could have all, not, no, you can't have all these, but you could have any one of these, of all these cookies. It was like just the most amazing thing. Like mine, you know that emoji with like the mind blown emoji, like the, like the, so that, that was kind of the thing. And then they choose a cookie. And that becomes the chosen cookie. Until they bite into like, ah, we don't like it. No, kidding. Oh, <laughs> there goes the sponsorship. Anyway, so here's the deal. Um, you know, why, why was that? Why did you choose that cookie? So like, I want the colored sprinkle. I mean, there's, again, there's like a thousand different types. Okay, 20. 20 or 30 different types. But like, I want... The colorful sprinkle, this, that, or the other. Okay. Why that one? I don't know. But that becomes now the chosen cookie. That's like the chosen one, right? There's like a ha uh, and like a little little spotlight that falls on it, and it's like this whole thing, very ceremonious uh, situation. That becomes the chosen cookie. God chose a land. Could he have chosen any other land? I don't know. Go ask him. Next time you speak to God, go ask him. I, I don't know the answer to the question. What I do know is that in our understanding, in our tradition, God chose the land of Israel. God says, I choose this. This one is the one. Why, why, why not the peanut butter? Why not the, there's a s'mores cookie or something? I don't know. There's like all that stuff. Why not? He chose the sprinkle cookie. What are you going to do? That's it. It's fine. I mean, anyone you would have asked, why, why that one? Got to choose something. God chose Israel. God chose that cookie. Sorry, God chose that land. Right? God chose that land. And God also chose the Jewish people. But let's leave the people aside for a moment. God chose the land of Israel. So that's one thing we know about Israel is that it's chosen by God. The second thing we know about Israel, there's two features, and these are going to parallel the Jewish people as well. The second feature that we know about Israel is that it is a holy land. So number one, it's chosen. And number two, it is holy. And one could reasonably um, uh, uh, presume and uh, deduce that one stems from the other. Once God chooses this land, once God chooses this land, well, then it becomes the holy land. Holy in the sense that it's the one that's chosen by God. And now it has a level of sanctity. And now it has certain mitzvot, as I mentioned before, 80, 90 mitzvot, that are only, can only be done in that land. Once God chooses it, well, now it has special qualities and features. Something like 80, between 80 and 90 mitzvot that can only be done in the land of Israel. Does this... I think I, I want to clarify this, a drop. Maybe go a drop deeper. I don't know if it's deeper, but maybe a little bit more clear. When you choose something, you know, pure choice, and we'll see this inside a little bit later, pure choice means that there's no overwhelming quality of one over the other. Pure choice means that it could have gone either way. Each one has its qualities. Each one has its, or two identical items. 
and you just chose one. So choice evokes the idea that it could have gone either way, but you just chose this one. Holiness means that this has now certain qualities that are special. So we would say that because God chose Israel, when he could have theoretically chosen any land, but he chose Israel, so now it has certain qualities that are unique. In other words, certain mitzvot can only be done there. And now it becomes a holy land. When you walk in there, you got more access, more connection points, more, right, more, um, if you're driving a Tesla, if you're driving a Tesla, so you know how important um, uh, those stations are. I don't drive a Tesla. Well, I don't know what those stations are called. The, you know where you plug in station? Charging station. Charging station. Thank you very much. The medical technical term is charging station. So you know how important a charging station is because, you know, you need to charge when you need to charge. Um, so imagine Israel has, right, spiritual. So, so there are spiritual charging stations. Every mitzvah is a charging station. Every mitzvah is you plug into God. That's fantastic. Israel has more charging stations. Isn't that great? And that's a holy land. That's what, that, that's what constitutes it as holy. And why does it have more charging stations? Because God chose it. So let's take a look at text 8. All right, Sharna, please read text number 8. And I'll put it up here as well on the screen. All right, Midrash again. Very Midrash-heavy class today. God says, the land of Israel is dear to me because I have made it holier than all the other lands in the world. You yourself know that when the land of Israel was distributed to the tribes, it did not pass from tribe to tribe. Rather, it was distributed to each tribe separately. Okay, so that evokes the idea that Israel, this text evokes the idea that Israel is holier, or is the holy land, it's holier than other lands. So we have now two Two unique features of Israel. It's chosen and it's holy. I want to ask you a question timeline-wise. Timeline-wise. When does God, when does Israel become the chosen land? When does Israel become the chosen land? The way we understand this is when God created the world. When God created the world, He said, all right, here's the whole world, but that's that, that piece, that's my cookie right there. That's, that's the one. That's the one. That's the land. So chosenness happens at creation. When does the land become holy? If we understand that holiness is tied into the mitzvot. So when does the, la- the mitzvot that you can do, in, the unique mitzvot that you can do in Israel, so when does Israel become the holy land? When do you think? Uh, well, Sinai, remember, they weren't yet living in Israel. I mean, the potential for Israel to become the Holy Land kicks in. I guess you're right. But when is the holiness of Israel actualized? In other words, when is the first time that Israel can actually be tapped into as a holy land? When the Jews go in. When the Jews go in, right? So we have a situation where we have two qualities of Israel. Israel is chosen and it's holy. The first one, the chosenness and our understanding happens at the beginning of creation, the beginning of time itself, when God creates the world, He chooses, designates the land of Israel, this is the place, and then it actualizes, it becomes holy once we have Torah and Jews living there, and mitzvot opportunities, so now it becomes a holy land. With this in mind, and this is very important, with this in mind, we can answer the question that we had before, on the verse in our Torah portion, why does God say to Moses to tell the Jewish people, when you go into land of Canaan, land of Canaan, why not call it the land of Israel? Remember we asked that question? Why does God call it the land of Canaan, not the land of Israel? Okay. 
So text nine, the Rebbe answers the question. All right, here we go. Text number nine. Um, Sandrine, please read this one. The difference between these two elements manifests itself among all the things in the name for the land. The land sanctity accounts for the name, the land of Israel, specifically to the exclusion of other names like the land of Canaan. Because the sanctity really has no association with the land of Canaan per se. By contrast, the fact that God chose this land does not call for a unique title of the land of Israel. Names like the land of Canaan can also be used. This is because God chose the land already when he created the world, elevating it from all other lands. So basically, thank you. What, what the Rebbe says, this is from the Rebbe's insights on this week's Torah portion. He says the two names of the land, the land of Israel or the land of Canaan or Canaan, those two names really reflect the two different elements of Israel. The idea of Israel being holy and Israel being chosen. The land of Israel is a name that signifies the Jewish connection to the land. Right, The land of Israel signifies that this land is holy because Jews are going to go in there and do mitzvot and plug into the, to the charging stations. That's the land of Israel. The land of Canaan, what does that signify? It, that, that, that reflects the chosenness of the land because the land was chosen already at creation even when other people were living there. It was already chosen. Again, that's an important idea. The land, the land, I'm not going to call it Israel, Canaan, that land, whatever the longitude and latitude is, that land was chosen by God at the point of creation. And when God created the world, He chose that land. Whether it's Canaan, whether it's Israel, it doesn't actually make a difference whether Jews are living there, whether they're not living there, whether there's Torah and Mitzvah, whether the Torah was given or not, it doesn't make a difference. It was chosen from the beginning of time. And that chosenness element is reflected in the, in, by calling it the land of Canaan. When God says, you know what this land is called? Hold on. When God says, this land is, is, this land is Canaan, you know what that means? God is saying, doesn't matter whether you're living there yet, whether you're not living there, whether they're mitzvot, whether you're doing them, whether you're not doing them, the land is still chosen. The land is chosen from the beginning of time. So the Canaanites can live there, other people can live there. That doesn't take away from the chosenness. The holiness only kicks in once Jews are living there. So when God says in the Torah, when you enter the land of Canaan, it's reflecting the idea that the land of Israel is not just holy, but it's chosen. Chosen in this, in this understanding is deeper than holy. Holy means you're doing something to reflect its holiness. Chosen means God did the heavy lifting already. It's already chosen. No matter what you do, what you don't do, it's still a, it's still a chosen land. To understand this better, let's translate this in human terms, in our relationship with God, which is anyway where we want to go with this because the, the land of Israel uh, dynamic is really just to help us understand the way this applies to us and the notion of a chosen people. But I, and I, but I think that the way we'll see this um, in the human context is going to be a little bit clearer than the way we see this in the, in the land of Israel context or the land of Canaan context. And, and here, here's the duality, the way it plays out within the human experience. A person can be valued based on what they do. A person can be valued based on who they are. Here's the difference. Your kid comes home from school with a report card. Remember that when they used to come home with a report, before like emails and digital report cards? Come home with a report card. You read the report card, aha, 
A's and B's and C's, alphabets, whole thing. The teacher writes, your kid is making straight, uh, uh, your kid makes straight A's. Like what? The B's are crooked. That was a joke. That's fine. All right. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa. Straight A's, but the yeah, B's are crooked. Anyway, all right, not my finest effort. It's okay. It's fine. It's, it's all good. Your pain is my, uh, keeps me going. So, so you, you get back a report card and you see that your kid did really well. Your kid got an A plus in all the subjects. And you turn to your child and you say, oh, Yanko, you did so well. And you give them a hug. I'm so proud of you. I love you. And as a parent, you think, oh, this is great parenting. Okay, here's, here's what we know. What we know is that, that, okay, I'm not criticizing, but that might not be great parenting. For the simple reason, you're telling your child that you love them and value them based on performance. Now, I, I, now I know you didn't say that, but you kind of did. Right? You got really excited when they got an A+. And you weren't that excited when they didn't get an A+. So what you're saying is, I vow, now, now the counter argument is, well, why can't you value achievement? You could, you could. But then don't be surprised if your kid thinks that you only love them for their achievement. That's fine. You could do that. But then if they correlate love with achievement, then that's their tell-all and their therapist, that between them and the therapist and their tell-all book, you know, for the rest of their life, which is fine. Again, I'm not, the, anyway, the point is like this. As parents, the, the holy grail of parenting to mix metaphors, the, the, the ideal of parenting is to constantly remind your child how much they are loved unconditionally, no matter what they do or achieve or don't do or don't achieve, they are essentially, unequivocally valuable, precious, and loved. You with me on this? That's healthy self-esteem. Healthy self-esteem is not when the kid scribbles a thing and like, oh my God, it's a Picasso. That's not, the kid is like, what are you talking about? I put zero effort into that. Why are you praising that? Like, what is happening here? Either A, <laughs> I don't know art, or you don't know art, or you're lying, or something's going on. But the, I don't know that that ever gave a child the sense of, of, of self-esteem. Even today, we know that you shouldn't tell the child what a beautiful work of art you should tell the child, oh, tell me about what you created. Have a conversation with the child. Don't make up stories. You with me on this? Because making up stories is not the equivalent of self-esteem. <sighs> yeah. Because if you don't say it's very hard. about the good report card, Yeah, right. You know, then right. Then the next thing you know, it's like, wow, that's a nice Harley Davidson. Yeah. Which there's nothing wrong with that either. But yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Andy Griffith? Okay. Nice. Yes. Seriously. Really? Yes. <laughs> I got to check out that. No, it's a, it was a show. It was a sitcom before they called it sitcoms, right? Yeah, I guess. So anyway, here's the deal. So there's two ways to measure the value. I'm just using a parenting example. How do we measure the value of someone? Based on their achievement or something a little bit more essential? I'm just using a parenting example to kind of like, you know, put it in focus. As parents, you know, we can choose at any moment, we can choose um, to praise results, to praise, uh, to praise achievement, 
or to, to, to value and to express the value of, of the person, the child as they are. There's t- two, different, two different focuses. And I'm sure there's, 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 a, there's an argument for praising achievement, and that's how you instill you know, values of achievement and success. I'm sure there's a counter-argument, and that's fine. But the point is that I want to distinguish between the two. Right? Distinguish between the two. There's, there's, and, and even within ourselves, you meet someone for the first time, and they say, oh, what's your name? And then they ask the next question inevitably is, what do you do? What do you do? In our society, that becomes the question. What's your name? I'm going to forget your name. But tell me what you do, and I'll tell you if I value this conversation. So what do you do? Yeah? What do you do? Tell me what you do. That line, what do you do? Trafe. Look at that. Such a bad line. You know what it means? It means I'm reducing you to what you do? Imagine a line. Try this pickup line. I mean, try this line, right? What's your name? Tell me about your soul. Wow. Oh, you had me at soul. Right? You had me at soul. Like, that's, that's a much deeper conversation. Tell me about you, what you do. You want to know which widgets I, I create, nine to five? Like, that's, why is that a thing? I know that's a thing because we live in a world that's a little bit more superficial than deep, and that's fine. And, and we live in a world that, that, that puts a weight on what we do as opposed to who we are. That's the world we live. We live in a world of achievement, a world of, of, of bottom line, and we don't live in a world of, of deeper values. I think Torah is trying to like reorient us the other way, but this, the, this is the, at least the status quo of, of our world is a little bit more weighted toward the achievement and the doing. But to every person, there are two elements. There's what you do, and then there's who you are on the inside. And those are two different things. So each one of us, forget about parents and kids and forget about you know, parties and meeting people. Within yourself, you can define yourself based on your achievement, your self-narrative. You can define yourself based on what you do. You can define yourself based on who you are. In our relationship with God, it's the same thing. God can relate to us based on what we do. God can relate to us based on who we are. That's the difference between holy and chosen. Same two adjectives. Holy versus chosen. Holy means are you doing holy things? Holy is are you doing the things that will achieve holiness? Are you studying Torah? Are you doing mitzvot? Are you praying? Those are holy activities. So are you doing them? If you're doing them, you're holy. If you're not doing them, not so holy. Are you a good student? Show me your grades. Right? Are you getting good grades? All right, A plus, you're a good student. D minus, is that a thing? D minus, yeah, yeah. Pff, I never got D. No, D minus. I don't know. Maybe you're not doing so well in school. Maybe that's not a thing, right? So that's like holiness. Holy, you say, who's holy? Someone who's like has a lot of uh, A pluses in Torah and mitzvot and prayer, right? That's someone holy, and and someone who doesn't have that achievement, not so holy. But what about chosenness? What is chosen? Chosen by God. You know what chosen means? Chosen means essentially connected. Chosen means that no matter what you do, no matter what you don't do, it's not about achievement, it's not a... Chosen means that God chose you. God says you and me are connected. That is it. I chose you. Not, notwithstanding action, effort, accomplishment, achievement, none of that takes away from the fact that I chose you. It's almost like the connection, again, going back to parents and children, it's like the connection between a parent and a child on the deepest of levels. 
even if the child comes back with uh, a bad report card, let's say, right? A, a less than stellar report card, less than stellar grades. Even if the child comes back and does things that the parent is not happy about, or the parent is not proud about, or the parent disapproves of, at the end of the day, still, still the child. It's still their child. Still their child. I'm now thinking of extreme cases, and I don't want to be thinking about extreme cases, so I'm going to push away those extreme cases from my head. Right? I'm just thinking like cases where a child turns to, you know, recently in these, right? Unfortunately, it's happened in our country again and again and again and again. And, and then there was a, the Uvaldi, the mother, was shouting at other parents who were shouting at her, saying, this is my kid, you don't understand. I, so I, I, don't, I don't want to think about that. I'm mentioning in case anyone else is thinking about it. I validate your thoughts, but we're not talking about exceptions and extremes. Tonight, let's talk about the norm. The norm is, you guys with me on this? Did I just take you down, like a trip down my, my brain? If so, so welcome and uh, hope you had a good, yeah, wear your wristband at all times. Back, back to our story. Back to our story is like this, that in life, there's things that we do and then there's who we are. The things that we do can render us holier, less holy, fully holy, not holy at all. All of that is based on accomplishment and achievement. And then there is who we are, and who we are is absolute. Who we are is unequivocal. Who we are is not something that can be created or broken. And so thus, here's the lesson. The lesson is, Torah and mitzvot are designed to, to make us holy. You take a person, you take a Jew, and you say to the Jew, here's 613 commandments, do these, you'll be holy. And if I don't do these, well, then you're not gonna, you're not charging, you're not plugging into holiness. So I don't know. Maybe you're not, maybe you're not so holy, or not as holy as you could be. Maybe. But what about chosenness? Chosenness doesn't change. Chosenness is essential. Chosenness me. Chosenness, chosenness means that you are chosen, whether you act on it, whether you don't act on it, whether you know it, whether you don't know, it, whether you choose to accept it or reject it. You're still chosen. You can't get rid of it. You can't get rid of chosenness. Chosenness is just, it's a thing, it's an absolute. So holiness is a variable. Holiness can go up and down like uh, interest rates. They can, too soon? They can go up and down. Interest rates can go up and down. They, are, they, they can fluctuate, right? It's the arm. It's the arm of, uh, of, of, of relationship to God. And the 30-year fixed, that's... That's your chosenness. I don't know. These are, these are not great analogies. But the chosenness is fixed. It is absolute. It is unequivocal. God chose us, whether we act on it or not. The bottom line is we are chosen. So here's what this means. Here's what this means. Um, text 11. We're going to do a few very quick texts and then come to the big, big, big finish. Okay, text number 11, last paragraph. In clear language, the Rebbe says, the relationship a Jew enjoys with God as a result of this choice is from God's very core connecting with the core of a Jew. God shows the Jewish people, it doesn't matter what they do or don't do, there's a connection there that is core to core. The relationship that is created due to a Jew's sanctity, holiness, namely through the Torah and mitzvot that are the will and desire of God, that doesn't connect a Jew's core with God's. A mitzvah doesn't connect you with God's core. You're already connected with God's core. Nor can a sin take you away from God's core. You're plugged in automatically because of the choice. Rather, it is a connection predicated on something, Torah and mitzvot. So when, you, when you're connected with God, 
we're, we're connected with God in multiple ways. The connection with God that happens through doing a mitzvah, studying Torah or prayer, those connections are connection based on effort and achievement and accomplishment. But and that's not to the core of God. The relationship that we have because God shows us, that is a core relationship. So to see this in, in, in some uh, Kabbalistic math from the Zohar, text 12, it says three knots bind one to another. The Jewish people, the Torah, and God. The Jewish people are bound with, uh, with the Torah, and the Torah is bound up with God. Right? So we have three knots. We have Jewish people, the Torah, and God. And it says the Jewish people are bound with Torah, and the Torah with God. So those are your three knots. And the, uh, the, the, the bright student who got the A plus in math would say those are only two bonds. Sorry, those are only two knots. You have three, three um, subjects with two knots. You have the Jewish people, the Torah, and God. Jews are connected with Torah. How many bonds is that? How many knots is that? One. And then Torah is, is knotted with God. How, that's, that's another knot. One plus one equals three? Yeah, no, two. I know if I said three, you would still say you love me because of that essential connection. Nonetheless, the answer, the correct mathematical answer is two. There's two knots. How do you get three knots? So the way this is explained in, in, in Hasidic um, understanding is the third knot is the knot that ties us, the Jewish people, directly with God. Yes, there are two knots. Sorry, yes, there's a connection that we have with God through, through the medium of Torah, but there's another connection that is essential. It's like the same thing with children. Going back to that example, that's probably the best uh, relationship analogy that we have with us and God, or one of the better ones. You know, a child, a parent could feel closer to a child when the child does what the parent likes, what the parent wants. The parent feels very close with the child. So yes, there is a relationship that is built based on achievement and, and, and accomplishment. There is that relationship, but that is not the deepest relationship. That's a superficial relationship. If your relationship with your kid is because they got a, you got a good grade on their test, that's a, I mean, sorry, but that's a, that's a, it's a relatively superficial connection. Because what happens if they don't get a good, good grade? They're no longer your kid? You're going to send them out and disown them? What do you mean? What? No, there's a deeper connection, even when they fail. God forbid. God forbid. Right? All Jewish mothers are like, no, don't say the don't say the fail word. Right? So even if the child fails, you still love them. Why? Because there's that third knot. That's not about achievement, not about accomplishment. So, in short, holiness, holiness means the Jews are a holy nation. Holiness means, well, they study Torah, do mitzvot. It's holy, holy activities. Chosenness means doesn't matter what they do or don't do. God chose. This people, God chose the Jewish people. Whether they don't do anything, still chosen. God doesn't revoke the choice. Chosen. Chosen is chosen. Those are two elements in our relationship with God. Now, one might say, well, look, if we're chosen anyway, so then why are we all here studying Torah? Let's go to the beach. We're chosen, right? Hello, free pass. It's like a child saying, my parent loves me anyway, even if I fail, so then why am I going to class? Right? Party time. Let's go. Right? Let's be, let's be, let's just, let's just do away with all this stuff. So here's the final, the final point of today's class. The conclusion, the result, the conclusion, what we, dedu what we deduce from the, from the idea that God has chosen us is not that therefore we could do whatever we want because anyway we're chosen. That would be a silly conclusion. I mean, that would, that would not be a healthy conclusion. The healthy conclusion is that God chooses us whether we like it or not. And even if we don't do anything, even if we're not studying Torah or doing mitzvot, God still says, I choose you. And I still have you in my plan. I still want you. You're still on the team. 
I didn't kick you out of the team. You're still on the team. And because you're on the team, I have a vision for you. I have a purpose for you. I have a role for you. So no matter what you're doing or not doing, doesn't matter, God says, I still chose you. It's like when you were kids and there was a pickup baseball game. Two captains and they're just choosing, choosing the kids and they divide into two teams. Remember this? Yeah, pickup, baseball, soccer, basketball, hockey. Pittsburgh was big into hockey. Football, right? You're just, you're on my team. You're, I'm not trading you in the middle of the game. You're on my team, you're on my team. Whether you're playing well or not playing well, you're on the team. And the message is being chosen. Being chosen is not... Being chosen, forget what it's not. Being chosen is a responsibility. It's not something to necessarily flaunt. It's a responsibility. It means that even when you're not in the mood, you're chosen. Even when you're tired, you're chosen. Even when you're bored, you're chosen. Even when you're not feeling it, guess what? You're chosen. Chosen means that you're always on call from God. God says, I choose you. See, holiness is subjective. If I want to be holy today, I'll be holy. I'll do good things. If not, I'm opting out. But chosenness means that God is always looking to us saying, I chose you for a mission. I chose you for something. And that chosenness does not go away. And so, is it a privilege? I, I hate to say it's not a privilege, because you know, I don't know that I could say it's not a privilege. But more than privilege, I think privilege is the wrong word. It's a responsibility. So when we say that the Jews are the chosen people, chosen, whoa, elitist. Elitist? It's a, I'm, not, I'm not trying to kvetch. It's a burden. <laughs> elitist. Elitist. Chosen is a burden. Chosen means that God is always looking at us and saying, New, I chose you. New, where are you? Holiness is when you show up, yeah, you're holy. But chosen means no matter what, God says, I chose you. Get in the game. I chose you. It's a burden. It's a responsibility. It's not a bad thing. God forbid, on the contrary, it's a good thing. But it's, still, but it's, a, but it's a responsibility. And in Judaism, it's democratized. Which means like this. You want to be chosen by God? You want to have responsibility? Sure. Sign right up. We got, a, we got a sheet outside by the door. You also want 613 commandments? You want that? Join. Uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm sounding like a, I don't know why it sounds like a threat the way I'm saying it. I'm not actually trying to say a threat. I'm just saying that, that there's a clause in Judaism that says you want the, you want the chosenness? In other words, you want that responsibility? Jump right in. It's a good, it's a wonderful thing. But it's, it's open. It's open. It's not exclusive. It's open. So, in short... Just like with Israel, Israel is a holy land, it's also a chosen land. The Jewish people have two elements also, holiness and chosenness. There's the holiness that is born of our actions, and then there is the essential chosenness. God says, whatever you do, whatever you don't do, I choose you. And that creates a deep association, that creates a deep responsibility from us to God. And the responsibility lies in not only what we do, but also in, uh, sorry, not only what we do vis-a-vis -vis God, but also what we do for the world in making the world a better place. This is why, this is why, you know, Tavia said, 
we are your chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose someone else? Right? That's feeling the responsibility of choice. It's feeling the, the, the weight of choice. God created, created Adam and Eve and said, now you guys are in charge. Like, what? What? Yeah, it's, a, it's a responsibility. Responsibility is, is, very, is very empowering. It's also very daunting, which is why Tevye says in Filler on the Roof, you know, maybe give that to someone else. Right? I'm, I'm like, I'm okay if you want to choose someone else uh, once in a while. But the bottom line is there's no denying the choice and there's no denying the responsibility. The responsibility is to be a light, not only to make the world a better place, but be a light into the nations and to let everyone, everyone, every human being on planet Earth know that they too are empowered to be a part of this process, of this, of this endeavor to make the world a better place. It's not exclusive to the Jew. The Jew carries a burden and responsibility to share the message with others. And the message is, we need everybody on board. So, in summation, is chosen, is the notion, just circling back to the main theme of today's class, is the notion of a chosen people, is that racist? No. First of all, it's not racist based on the fact that you could be any race and be Jewish, right? Or... Right? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not associated with any certain race. Um, is, it, uh, is, is it denigrating others? No. Everyone is precious. Jews are a treasure, which we are understanding to be the notion of, of chosenness. I asked at the beginning of the class, what constitutes this idea of, of a treasure? And, and how is that not elitist? Elitist? It's a responsibility. You say a responsibility is elitist? Elitist makes it sound like you have a lot of privileges. Privileges? This is not about privileges as much as it is about responsibilities. Is that elitist to say that, that, that the Jew has 613 commandments and, and the, rest of, you know, the, the rest of humanity has, um, has, a, has, a, has a far fewer number? Is that elitist? I don't know if it's elitist. Is it different? It's different. But different is also good. And I think the main idea here is, as well as I mentioned, that anyone who wants in on the 613 is welcome. Welcome with open arms. There's always, there's always the opting in. So next time you hear someone say, or you read the notion of it, you read the idea of a chosen people, chosen nation, and you might feel yourself getting a little uncomfortable, like, ooh, ah, it sounds so elitist. Just remember, it's not, it's not being elitist. It's not, it's not snubbing a nose at anyone else. Simply saying there's a responsibility here that Judaism has, that Judaism, that the Jew has responsibility to, to, uh, to certain behaviors, but also to, sh- uh, to shining a light onto the world and inspiring others as well as to their own preciousness. So let's be inspired from today's lesson about the preciousness and the chosenness and the holiness of the land of Israel and the same with regards to the Jewish people to continue to share our light with others, to be a torch of light unto our world and unto the nations. And with this, we will bring Mashiach very, very soon. As the Hebrew saying goes, of in our days, and let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. Um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so this, you know, this is the last Torah Studies in July. 
Oh, yes. Which can only mean one thing. <laughs> that this is uh, my last Torah studies here at IJA. So I want to share my appreciation and gratitude. You guys are amazing. And uh, the, show will, the show will go on. Rabbi Shusman emailed me today, this morning, that he will plan on teaching next week. So stay tuned for more announcements about that. And uh, for those that want to know about plans for me and for our family individually, stay tuned, stay in touch. Which, and which channel? Which channel? <laughs> <laughs> you have my, you have my number. You have my number. You can WhatsApp me. <laughs> we'll stay in touch, please God. So, uh, so stay tuned. Uh, but yeah, so look out for emails from Chabad in town. And then, of course, stay in touch. And we'll have certainly more opportunities to get together, and to connect, to study, and to inspire each other. So thank you. There are individuals here that have been, well, Marnine is no longer here. But I, I know that Donna and Fred, you guys, Adina Malka, some of you have been here from the very, very beginning. 2006, 2006. Remember the first Torah studies class that I did was Noach, Parshas Noach, it was right after the holidays, 2006, 2007, that year. Um, still remember that first class. I was reminiscing with Leah earlier today. I was trying to navigate a teacher's manual, a student book, a podium, PowerPoint, Clickers, that, that, that things were falling off my head. I came back. I remember saying, Leah, I don't know. I don't know. This is, no, no, no. Because we had it, or that first class, we had it oriented the other way, facing Ponce Avenue. Not facing the, uh, the fireplace, but facing the other way. I remember I came home that night. It was the first Torah studies class I ever taught, which is basically the first class that, that I taught that I didn't create myself. Right? This is material. Ultimately, I learned, I learned the, uh, the art of taking existing material and making it my own. But at that point, I was trying to follow a script, and it was, it was like very... <laughs> it was, anyway, it's fun times and fun, fun memories. Um, oh, and Mike and Sarah, of course. Mike and Sarah, I think you, got, you guys for sure were at that first class. Mike and Sarah, yeah. feel free to unmute. Yeah, you were for sure at that class. Um, so thanks for being patient with me as I grew into, uh, into teaching. And I don't know, I don't want to eulogize myself. So anyway, bottom line is, look out for an email from Chabad in town. Enough of the mushy stuff. Look out for an email from Chabad in town about scheduling stuff. I plan, by the way, I plan on teaching JLI uh, over here um, as well uh, come, come the fall. So stay, stay tuned. There will be more classes that I'm teaching, classes that other people will be teaching here as I kind of transition. And, uh, and stay tuned or stay in touch to find out where the journey continues. All right. It's great to see you all. Any uh, questions or comments about the class? <laughs> about the class? Wonderful, as always. Thank you. All right. Yes, Ray. Rabbi, um, can it continue elsewhere? Like, suppose we were to open our homes and say, this week is going to be here next week. Can't we... Um, we can, we can be in touch. We can, we can schmooze. 
about, about possibilities. All, all possibilities are, are open and we can, we can certainly talk about that. Um, a quick, I guess, scheduling announcement. So there's daily power partnership for the next few days and then Sunday morning Kabbalah and coffee. So if anybody wants to join for that, feel free to do so as well Sunday morning. Just so you know, the date of Sunday morning is July 30th, 31st? 31st. 31st. Yeah, Monday would be July 30th. And Monday would be July 32nd. And Tuesday, July 33rd. Anyway. Sorry? That can be the last Kabbalah and coffee. We're going to, so here's how I would phrase it. That will be the last Kabbalah coffee of the current book. We're actually going to conclude. We're going to finish the book that we've been studying. We have uh, 60, close to 70 sessions on this book, Overcoming Folly. And this will be our final session of the book. Kabbalah and coffee will live on. So again, stay tuned for, um, for the news as it breaks. Yes. I've been reading Rabbi Monash Friedman, Creating a Life That Matters. Yes. You know, so, and, and it, it seems a little bit hoodpredict, I'll say it, not him, that uh, this core relationship between God and a Jew is like God saying, I cannot live without you. Mm. I cannot live without you. And he talks about right. in the old days, uh, there would be a couple married, and they didn't agree on anything. They were always fighting and everything. But the fact of the matter is, they cannot live without each other. Yeah, that's great. That's that's cl- classic Rabbi Manus Friedman. Also, <laughs> that's the way he puts it. Yeah, he's he's big into that idea. I've heard him say it so many times. The idea that God needs us, not just chose us, not just wants us, but needs us. It's like a, a really uh, not to sound um, um, uh, codependent, but like God, God needs us. It's it's a it's a relationship. Like I can't live without you. Kind of the way you said it. You said it better, right? Can't live without you. Can't live without you. We might not see eye to eye on most things or on anything. Some things, most things, anything. But number bottom line is, it's like it's like the the Jew that's at service on Yom Kippur and you ask them, oh, so you believe in God? No. So why are you here? Because it's Yom Kippur. What do you mean? Wait. Do I do I agree with God? Do I know about God? No. But I'm here. It's Yom Kippur. Anyway, it's a beautiful thing. It's an essential thing. Yeah. Okay, can we get a list of names and addresses or phone numbers at least of each other? Is there? Um, well, yeah, there should be a way to get that. There's a, there should be a list or a database that we have. It's okay with me to give my email. I just don't know who's going to compile. I just don't, I'm not sure who's going to compile it. Um, Ray is going to. <laughs> Perfect. You know, that's what they said to Pinchas. Pinchas is like, one second, this guy, there's some public acts of immorality going on. I think this person should be taken out. They're like, well, your, your idea. Go ahead, Pinchas. <laughs> right. So, uh, right. Well, we can coordinate. Let's, uh, let's be in touch. Now we have a few things to talk about. Good. Alrighty, we're planning our, uh, our schmoozes. I like it. I like it. Good. All right. So, everyone, great to see you. Thank you, Rabbi. Stay in touch. And uh, till next time. All right. We'll see you guys. Lila Tov. Lila Tov. Bye, everybody. Record.